I'm honest and no, I'm so, said that. I'm so That is so. I'm so offended. <laughs> no, I'm just asking. Do I a Rolodex of famous people to talk to? <laughs> what the fuck? This is Annabelle Steele, and you're listening to the Hayseed Scholar from Professor Brent Steele. You may call him Doctor. I just call him Dad. Here's my Uncle Kyle to introduce the show. Recording in studios from Utah to the UK and anywhere in between, you never know where Professor Brent Jameson Steele will be dropping knowledge and bringing you the best guest the universe has to offer. This is the Hayseed Scholar with Mr. Worldwide, my brother, Dr. Brent Jameson Steele. I like that one. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Hayseed Scholar podcast. I'm Brent Steele. Thanks so much for listening. This is an interview I did at the ISA West in Pasadena with Yelena Subodich of Georgia State University. It runs a little over an hour. I've known Yelena for some time now. We're friends. And we uh, had this interview following a day of conferencing at the ISA West, which is a nice low-key conference. It's become one of my favorite ones to go to. And we, one of the panels that we had was a roundtable on her new book, Yellow Star, Red Star, coming out with Cornell University Press very soon. And as you can tell from the introduction already, uh, it was a uh, very lively and entertaining uh, discussion. Mule 2.0. Oh, my God. Yeah, so you, you want... have glasses? Yeah, no, I got it. So, you yeah. Have eyes? Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> this is unbelievable. I know, isn't it nice? But here's the thing, like, I had years of bartending experience at golf courses, basically just serving old men, beef eaters, oh, jazz. So, welcome to the Hasty Scholar Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm very honored to be here. This is really, this is the peak of my professional accomplishments. No, oh, this is really, this is no, it. No, it's like, not. I can quit now. I have. I your, am on the Hasty Podcast. <laughs> I have your professional accomplishments. Front of your, I know in front of me right now. I know that this, this goes on my CV. Yeah. Okay. As All like right. outreach. <laughs> um, well, this is uh, so. Let's start at the beginning. You grew up in Yugoslavia. Yes. 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 Okay. Where is this going? No. So what? Um, I guess the the basis for this question is it feels like in your writings. Um, and some of the publications you've had, and just in chatting with you, that you have some nostalgia for Yugoslavia. For Yugoslavia, yes. Not, not necessarily for. Not for, not for today. But right, for right, the right. Old one, yes, I do. That's true. So what? So what was it like growing up in Yugoslavia? So it was interesting. It was very diverse, and that's the thing that I miss most of all. And we're in we're in Yugoslavia. I, There's a Subotica, Subotica. Subotica, yeah. Is that where your no, family is no, from? No, 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 no. Okay. It just means my name means Saturday. Subotica means Saturday. Oh, so my okay. last name is just Saturday. That's okay. really, it's very banal. There's no story behind it. So uh, what I liked about old Yugoslavia was its diversity and the fact that. We could all travel to different places and still be in the same country and go to very diverse places and very religiously diverse and very culturally diverse and very ethnically diverse. And that was very normalized. And part of the um, very um, deliberate communist attempt to suppress ethnicity was to suppress ethnicity, which I thought they did very well, which I you know, think is usually a good idea. Um, to cherish other kinds of values in your society other than your ethnic identity. So I grew up with very um, 
limited or almost non-existent understanding of my own ethnic identity. Like, it just was not a thing. Really? So even, like, your, your parents wouldn't even mention it? Uh, my dad would mention it, not my mom. My mom was also very, very committed to Yugoslavia, uh-huh. and so was her dad. And so we had a little bit split in the family between my dad, who was more committed to having a Serbian identity, but my mom was very committed to a Yugoslav one. She worked in, in her professional career, also worked to her. She's an expert in art history, and especially in Yugoslav art. And so part of her professional um, expression was also the expression of Yugoslav uh, artistic identity. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the, um, the discussion we used to have at home. Were, were you aware of the ethnic differences even if you didn't come into contact with yeah or even yes. like negative identity like negative identification even if there wasn't necessarily a positive affirmation of serbian mm-hmm. identity was there like a, a denigration of other identities or was really that not no as... it was not certainly not part of how i okay. saw the world or how i processed it that all changed in the 80s so sure. we're talking about the 70s mm-hmm. and like mid 80s and then that all changed uh, very quickly overnight and ethnic identity became the only marker of everybody, literally overnight in like 87. And so I was like 16 at the time. So I was just becoming politically aware when all of a sudden everything became about ethnicity and all of a sudden I was confronted with the fact that I was supposed to feel Serbian and that was very alien to me and I didn't like that. Was your school heterogeneous in terms of different ethnicities? Yes. Like oh, when yeah. you were in grade school? Oh yeah. Even? Oh yeah. So did, did that like, did you feel it on that level, like in your high school or whatever the version of? It changed very quickly into this is now you. It, you're now Serbs, and very quickly you're gonna learn a different kind of history than you were before. So that that all changed very very quickly. What and what about how did that impact the kids that weren't Serb then in your class? Oh, I'm sure not well. Yeah. Um, this was this in Belgrade. Yes. Yeah, you, yes. Okay. Yeah. So so. Milosevic came to power in 87, so I was in, let's say, 10th grade, maybe? And so, so in my 11th and 12th grade, so my last two years of high school, were all politicized, because all of a sudden, um, you know, Milosevic supporters would come to our school, and they would try to... Um, recruit us for the cause, and recruit us for the political party. And this is a public school? Mm-hmm. No, I'm okay. Yeah. And then we had a classmate who was a very devoted Milosevic uh, guy, and so he organized, with school support, um, busing to one of Milosevic's rallies. One of the rallies that Andrew Ross talks about in his book, mm-hmm. that was there, mm-hmm. on a school bus. And all of that was very repellent to me. Uh, so even then? Oh, yeah. Were, oh, really? yeah. It was okay. very difficult because it was, I mean, yeah, it was just, it was obviously repellent. And I was not the only one. I mean, many of my friends were repelled by it. Um, they were, okay, so you weren't like an exception. No, I, mean, I don't know if I was an exception. I, I would guess most kids just didn't care. And then there were kids who thought it was cool, but that was a minority. And then a group of kids who thought this was repellent. And how, did, have you ever thought back to why there were certain kids that sorted into different sort of views on it? Like, was it their parents' influence? Maybe, or? maybe. I would say that non-Serb kids probably immediately mm-hmm. figured out this is well, sure, bad yeah, for them. Yeah. And then maybe the parents. Um, were there a lot of other Serb kids like you, though, that also found it repellent? 
There were some. Yeah, yeah. I, had a, I had a group. I had a strong group of friends. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I left. So why why is this when you went to LSE mm-hmm. for undergrad? So I, I was kind of curious about that, looking at your CV and knowing that you went to LSE. You would have gone, so you probably graduated high school in 89? Right. So right during the right during the breakup, right? Or, or was this right Well, the before? war started in 91. Okay. So I was actually in, in London when the war started. But hadn't, hadn't a couple of um, uh, republics already broken off or not? No. The first one to go was Slovenia in 91. There was 91. That's right. So I had a gap year between 89. So I graduated high school in 89, and then I enrolled in philosophy uh, here's the Belgrade, but I also applied for the LSC, and then once I got into LSC, I realized I won't do that, and so I quit the philosophy major, mm-hmm. but I, that was like a gap year. And then I started my LSC um, undergraduate in 1990, and so I was there from 1990 to 1993. When all the shit was in Yes, yes. And what, did you go back during? Uh, yeah, I went back. Uh, for every Christmas break, and I went back every summer break. But I also, yeah, so, yeah, it was, it was very, yeah, it was very stressful. What, um, like, when you would go back, could you, could you, like, travel around, I mean, obviously you can travel into See, but the Bosnia thing is, no, but the thing is that, like, Serbia was completely isolated from the violence, because Serbia was in the business of perpetuating violence, <laughs> right, right, and right. sending tanks to other places, uh-huh. so if you lived in Belgrade, you lived isolated from violence, um, and so my life, when I would come back, was fine, it was just very, uh, I was very quickly... Uh, very politically activated by mm-hmm. the war, and my, I had some family. My aunt was a uh, very um, well influential anti-war activist and mm-hmm. very famous anti-war activist, and so I really quickly moved to that side. And I so had there was an anti-war movement. In, yes, there was an anti-war. Yeah. Absolutely, there was an anti-war movement. Um, so I had friends who were. So I had like a group of friends um, and some family members who were um, very anti-war, and so I was very attracted to that group, uh, but I was also um, very emotionally invested in what was, even then we knew ethnic cleansing and then genocide in Bosnia, and it was very, um, it was very clear to me as a 19, 20 year old that this is not in my name, and I was uh, very upset by that, and kind of figure out what I can do about it, and I did little acts of kindness to refugees. I mean, it, like little things that I always felt, felt were inadequate, but it was absolutely... While you were in London or when you would go both, back? Both, both, okay. both. So, you know, like trying to help family friends escape Sarajevo, and then family friends would escape Sarajevo, and then I would give them some money to get to London, I would find them a place to live in London, like stuff like that, like nothing major or heroic, but like little, I was trying to do something, and so if I could help like this one... Well, there's nothing to look about that. I mean, but that's all you could do, right? Well, my mom did. Which is more than a well. Well, my aunt did much more. So my aunt would go to, uh, she would go to the front lines and you know try to help people who are arrested. Was this your mom's sister? It's my mom's sister, and so and she was also like caught by Bosnian Serbs and put in prison, and like she (laughs) she actually had some real heroics behind her. And my mom even was not very politically active uh she one of her very close friends was um uh caught in the Sarajevo siege 
And so my mom would um, travel a couple of times to Sarajevo with supplies and help her out and, and literally bring her like food. Um, so it was it was it was horrible. But it was I mean the question I think that you're asking is yes this was the absolutely the formative political experience of my life and it was also an experience of my understanding my own responsibility in it and mm -hmm. my own. Um, in kind of internalized accountability of not being able to do anything and being this like privileged kid in London where all my friends are, you know, like starving. What, so, um, where would you have been then? Uh, at, so where did you go after? Well, first off, I, I mean, this is, I, I want to come back to the, to the topic of, um, of the breakup and, and, and war and everything else, but, um, but you also, did you know, because your BA is in social anthropology, so did you, was that always something that um, No, I didn't know what it know? was. I thought it sounded cool. I had no idea what the discipline was. But all the other ones looked boring, and so I was like, this looks interesting. I, I didn't. After you are already there, or no, when, I just, when you were going into Yeah, when I went in, I was like, I don't, this sounds good. I don't, I know sociology, I don't want that. I know what philosophy is. This looks interesting. I think I know what it is, so I'll enroll in that. What I did not understand is that in the UK system, this is only a study for three years. <laughs> right. So that's it. That's all I got for three years. But it was good. I liked it. So what, um, why, I guess, why didn't you just continue on with social anthropology later on? Was it something you I never thought I was going to go get a PhD. Okay. I thought my career track, so once I finished uh, with the, uh, with LSC, so once I finished and got my BA, I wanted to stay and get an MA in media studies of all things. Oh, okay. And I got in, but I didn't get any financial aid, so I really couldn't get in. That was also the LSC, so I just had to go back. So I went back, and I got a job at the George Soros Foundation. Mm-hmm. And was actually paid by George Soros. Right, right, right. <laughs> I was like literally on the George Soros payroll, and I did that job for six years, and I really liked it. it where, where in Belgrade. In Belgrade. Yeah, so I went all the way back, and I also had a side gig. I worked for um, what was then, now defunct, independent radio station. I had a DJ show, but it was also very political. So I mean, all, I just played music. I had nothing to do with it. But like the political. Um, uh, group uh, at the radio station was very significant for the what, times. So what year would this have been? So I came back, so this was from 93 to 1999. So you were, were, were you a DJ, or you were at this radio station during, the, just during all of the, the you know, from 93 onward? Yes. The mm -hmm. war and everything yes, else? Yes, and I remember when they, I remember so clearly when they, our, our political reporters came to their studio and said, something's going on in Srebrenica, there are people missing, and we don't know where they are, and something's going on, so like reserve time, we're going to figure it out. And you know, this was before real internet or yeah, cell phones, yeah. so they, they couldn't figure it out, but we kind of knew that something really terrible has happened, because they kept so saying So this would have been July missing. of 95. 95. So had you been there for a little while at this radio mm -hmm. station? Mm -hmm. yeah. So did you guys talk about those things yes. on the radio station? Yes. Oh, yes. That was the, the whole. That was the radio station. Yeah, it was. And yeah. did you did you face any like pressure from the government? Or oh yeah, yeah. Oh, all the time. They would come and take. They would cut the cable. They would take the transmitter off. Oh no shit. Oh yeah. We had police come in. Police raids all the time. They had to move offices all the time. 
Did you ever feel physically threatened uh, there by no, any of the authorities? Or no, anything? no. I was not in the political section, so nobody came to bother me. But certainly, like, I would go, you know, somebody would call me and say, you can't come today, like, they shut us down. So I'm like, can they come tomorrow? They're like, we'll figure it out. Ah, uh, okay. Right. So, but you, you just did the music side? Mm-hmm. So what kind of music were you? Were you playing American, U.S. American music, or was it all... Serbian? I don't even know. That was <laughs> just such an offensive question. Yeah, I played. I don't know what. Is, yeah, like yeah, I played like Serbian turbo folk. <laughs> seriously, no, like, this is just no, embarrassing. No, 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 and the and, I know. like that Matt is only my friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. So, okay, so so you, so you that was also like a big... And I was also, this is very important for me that you know, and that's in the podcast, I was the first ever female DJ. Nice. And I had a little bit of a following because girls liked me, you know, like they was tired of these dudes just playing the same kind of shit. And so he, oh, I'm sorry, this is like the explicit lyric. I already I just, shit. I just fine. swore. Okay. I already, I'm pre-ordering the okay. E designation. Okay, all right. Yeah. Okay, good. So yeah, so I, I, I love doing that. So I did, so I did my Soros stuff in the morning and then twice a week, I think, maybe once, I can't remember, once or twice a week I had my one hour show. Would you, um, so what, did, did you ever want to, did you ever like, DJ like clubs and stuff like that too. It was I just could never stay up that late. Uh, you know, of There's course. There's no way. No. Like what time does the gig start at eleven? Okay. No, I had no interest in that. But were you were you kind of famous? Were you like a local celebrity or? A miniature. I mean, to the extent this was a very urban radio station that didn't really blast outside of downtown, and so you know, to the extent that we had any serious listenership. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't that, but yeah. Well, and returning to the context a little bit, like, what did, did you, I mean, was it obvious, uh, and, you know, obviously we're we're right now in very politically charged times, and it's really difficult to go into certain places in the United States and talk to people that are, you know, supporters of particular things or whatever, um, even if we're, like, related to anything, but had had you... um, did it feel really, really politically charged, like walking around Belgrade, talking yes. to people? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And there were there yes. people even then that were, like, how did people react to Srebrenica or or any of the bad stuff that was happening? Like, like that. How did they defend it, or did they defend it? No, or? a lot of it. A lot of it was unknown, unprocessed. People didn't particularly care because very soon. So this was in July of, of 1995, and in August of 1995, so just a month later, almost the entire Serbian population was uh, expelled from Croatia, mm-hmm. and that's what people cared about. So that was immediately. So whatever little news snippets they could hear about Srebrenica disappeared because of the, of the drama of and the tragedy of the ethnic cleansing, right? And the 300,000 people who suddenly kind of appeared uh-huh. um, as refugees. Which is also part of, part of, like, in your book, you talk about the, mm-hmm. that being a big factor mm-hmm. in terms of the way that the Serbs have reappropriated um, Holocaust memory. Okay. Um, so how would you say, how would you say, like, all of these wars shaped your interests? I mean, were you immediately interested in transitional justice or whatever, or was it one of these things where you knew you needed to study international relations? No, or? none of that. No, I still work for Soros. 
and I was committed to the mission, uh, which was uh, helping human rights groups. So I was a grants officer. So what I did was evaluate proposals that local NGOs that are doing human rights or ethnic reconciliation or new education initiatives. Or I also was involved with uh, giving scholarships to um, Serbian students who wanted to study the CEU. So that's how I met. Mm-hmm. I met so many people who are now my friends right. who just got degrees at the CEU. So I was, I was just a grants officer, so I was evaluating and doing that. Then also my job was to write a strategy every year. So what do we want to accomplish? What kinds of groups? Like what do we want to see? Mm-hmm. But, and I really liked that job. I enjoyed it. I was in charge of like many programs. So I had no real sense of of getting a graduate degree or getting, like that was just not, I thought I would just advance through the Soros bureaucracy and, you know, get higher positions in the organization and maybe, oh my God, get to New York and maybe work in the, like, you know, New York mm-hmm. office. That was, so that's my career path. And then it was all just like serendipity. So part of, one of our projects was uh, doing uh, some work with a very small NGO in uh, Budapest and that NGO was headed by a retired professor from Syracuse University. Uh-huh. And he was, this was his post-retirement gig. And so we worked with him. And so, you know, he was very nice. And he said, you know, have you ever considered, you were so smart. Have you ever considered going to the U.S. to get a master's degree? And I'm like, I don't know. Well, what? And he's like, well, what if I can help you get scholarship? What are, like, would you be interested? So I was like, sure. And then you bombed me. <laughs> and then I have a question yes, on her about yes, U.S. involvement. Yes, so you bombed me, which was I did, I did, yeah. which was fine. Actually, I'm, I'm okay with that, which is a whole other thing. Twenty-year-old podcast. No, I was, I was okay. actually okay with that. But that kind of expedite. I was like, so it's not just that the bombing was, you know, difficult to live day by day, but also it changed the Soros Foundation mm-hmm. and it changed our public base because there were actual real or, and or perceived threats on people. And so the, the foundation shut down for three months. So in, in, was, in Belgrade? Yeah, so I was kind of unemployed. And I was just thinking, But so you were in Belgrade during Operation Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah it was like awesome. Yeah. Some of the best days of my life. S- seriously? Absolutely. You were, why? It was... So this would have been in 99. Like 99, because, yeah. yeah, I'm not a very balanced person. It was very, uh, well, I politically supported it because I thought that Milosevic's ethnic cleansing campaign is not going to be stopped any other way. Uh-huh. So basically for me, that was, it was just very simple. It was like, he's going to kill Albanians in Kosovo. Like he's just going to, he's going to kill them all. So something needs to be done. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, we can, this is a whole, it's, it's, I'm simplifying everything, but of course, we can talk about the ethics of it and all of that and whether it's whether it was even successful, we can talk about all of that. But in terms of the actual lived life under the um, intervention, I thought from my perspective that it was actually done with with serious care because we really went about our business and most of the buildings that were targeted were Military not right. They were not civilian. Now, of course, there's a TV station. There are all the other things that the happened. Embassy, the Chinese embassy, and so things got worse uh, as the U.S. ran out of targets. Basically, mm-hmm. the NATO ran out of targets. But at least in that first period, it was. I didn't. I mean, I didn't like it. It was. It was scary. 
Um, but I, I didn't have a sense that something's going to happen to me. Uh, it was mostly like how to survive all this other stuff. You know, like losing power, losing water, mm-hmm. people hoarding food. Uh, but I, I was never as afraid as one day in April when my next-door neighbor, like literally house right next to mine, who was a prominent anti-government journalist, was assassinated. Um, and that was very scary. I was like, okay, so this is really bad. Um, this was during the bombing mm-hmm, campaign, mm-hmm, and, and mm-hmm. no kidding. Yeah, so that was very, uh, so I, that was very, because, uh, you know, I knew him, we talked. Um, Do you know that he was assassinated? Oh, yeah. The oh, yeah, 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 oh, yeah, 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 oh, yeah, yeah. So that was scary, but what I think back fondly on this is that there was, there was a group of five friends, uh-huh. and we... I never felt as much solidarity and kind of group identity with anybody before and after. We just had, we always thought, so we would, we called it, let's wait for it. Like we had like a kind of a, a wake <laughs> every night because the bombing would start late at night. Right. So it starts like after midnight. <coughs> so we, it was about five, six of us, and we made a pact that we're not going to be alone. And so we would rotate each other's house, like every night we would be at our house and we were drinking and partying and hanging out and kind of watch the fireworks and it was just very we talked politics of course we you talked could hear about the bomb. You, could, you could you could it was around you i mean like you could hear the bomb oh yeah it okay. sounds like people ask me about it sounds it sounds like incredibly powerful thunderstorm like the one that shakes your house that's uh-huh. what it sounds like did it did you ever feel the vibration i fell out of my bed oh no kidding oh yeah okay oh my god oh yeah it's yeah. i mean your whole house shakes yeah. I mean, I, and I know I'm totally reinforcing this, like, privileged American sort of well, view because yeah. I've never, like, felt the bomb or whatever, but I, I do wonder. It's a, it's a very, I have a very conflicted view that may have changed over time also a little bit, but I remember, it was, I was so political, and it was so important for me that Milosevic goes, that it really trumped all this other stuff. Like, I was, I, I mean, it was like, I hated him like I hate Trump now. Mm-hmm. Like it was like I was like this needs to happen. I don't care. This needs to stop. How, how did you engage people that were Milosevic supporters? Yeah, I didn't. You can't. You can't. You just like didn't. you can't engage Trump. You can't. Right. There's okay. nothing. There's nothing. And uh, Philip and I, Philip Adus and I, mm-hmm. have a paper that we wrote as a book chapter that's coming out, where we constructed or reconstructed how this narrative about the 1999 air raids developed um, in Serbia and who we call it the truth regime mm-hmm. and how it's one truth uh, or one type of narrative about what happened that you cannot challenge in Serbia. Like you can be fired for that. Like you can, even like Srebrenica, all that stuff is loosened up a little bit uh-huh. and you can have a legit argument about the wars and blah, blah. You cannot have an argument about whether there's any justification about the NATO because Serbia was the victim. Yes, that that's not like people were fired for it. Like academics were fired for it. Is it still? I mean, it's obviously still it's solidified. It's it's yeah. now it's 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 more stable than even it was twenty years ago. So I and I interrupted you then because then it was so when I bombed you or whatever. Um, you said that that was what that, that sort of period of time is also an important and important, not the important, but an important catalyst for you to. Yeah, because at that time I got this offer from Syracuse University with a with scholarship, and I was like, you know what? I got no job. My office is shut down. Mm-hmm. There's bombs. Like <laughs> I just like it's time to go. So I did. I did leave after the 
uh, air war was over. So I left at the end of June. So I left like a two weeks maybe mm -hmm. after the whole thing was done. And so I went to Syracuse and I was supposed to stay for just one year. So it was a scholarship for a one-year master's MPA, Master of Public Administration. Yeah, MPA, because you you get a master's in public administration right. in 2000 and then you, and from Syracuse. And then the very next year you get one in, uh, IR. in IR. So what happened, so I was just there for this one MPA. And the whole, uh, my goal was I'll get this MPA and then maybe I'll get a better job at a Soros Foundation. Like, I just assumed that I would go back or maybe I'll go to New York. You know, like, that's like the thing. Best thing can happen. I can work for George Soros in Europe. So that was my whole goal. And then I took one class with uh, Professor Jeremy Schiffman, who your friend Jeremy Yud knows. He does a public health. Oh, okay. And he was teaching. He was a political scientist, and he was teaching in this class in this program. And the class was on uh, democracy. And it was a PhD level class that he just taught in this program. And it was so amazing. And he was so amazing, and I wrote a paper for his class, and he loved the paper, so we just talked, and he said, well, have you considered getting a PhD in political science? And I was like, no, <laughs> I don't know what's political science. And he was like, do you know, there's like IR, there's comparative, I don't know, what is this? So he explained all this. So I said, okay, this sounds, I like, literally took this just that one class for me to realize this seems like what I want to do now. Mm -hmm. I want to work for George Soros bureaucracy, I want to be a professor, and so I guess I need to get a PhD for that, so I'll figure out how to do that. So it was in a grad class that you discovered you mm -hmm. want to be a professor? Yeah. And then did, um, how were there other, like how big would, would your like your cohort in that master's program have been? Like with other, were there other people kind of like you that were really? Few. Most people got that program to, uh, uh, to, to enhance like their government. To enhance yeah. their government yeah. or, or consulting right, like uh, Ernest or... Young, yeah. Anderson consulting stuff. But there are a couple of people who got sidetracked into a PhD. So I applied that immediately after that first year or during that first year, I applied to schools to get a PhD in political science. But since I didn't know anything, I didn't know that you have to do really well in GRE, so my GRE sucked. I only applied to top school. I didn't know anything. I applied to like Harvard and Yale and state like places I knew, mm -hmm. and so I didn't get anywhere. Mm -hmm. I got into. I applied to University of Chicago, and they didn't let me into PhD program. But some but anyway. So it, it just didn't work out, and so I was like, okay, so this is what, what I'm going to do. And so I thought, well, maybe maybe I can try it next year. So uh, I had to fill this year somehow. So they had this MA in IR. And that I could combine with the work I've already done from MPA, uh -huh. so I could get this dual degree. So I stayed an extra year in Syracuse, got this um, uh, MA in IR. Did you retake the GRE? I retook the yep. GRE. That's exactly what I did. And yeah. I did much better. Yep. And I got into better schools. And then the the complication was, so I already met uh, now my husband, Doug, and he at that time was working on the El Gore campaign. And he was in Nashville, Tennessee, where blah, blah, all of this was uh, headquartered. And our deal was that I should apply to schools I want to go to anyway, but also to schools in D.C. Because if I were to get into these schools and Al Gore would win, right. then that out. would work for the White House yeah. and we would live in D.C. So I was like, okay, sure. So I applied for Georgetown and I applied to University of Maryland College Park. And I also applied to the school I really wanted to go to, which is University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I got into all three. And then the fucking recount happened. <laughs> so I didn't know 
where I'm going to live, which school. I'm, and they were calling me. They were like, you need your answer. And I'm like, watch TV when you know, when they know, you'll know. And it was just insane. And so I, in the end, you know, the Supreme Court decided what they decided. So we were not going to go and live in Bush's D.C. So we went to Madison. So what did Doug, I, I know this about you, but like what did Doug do then? He, he was, it was his idea for me to apply to Wisconsin because he went there as an undergrad. And as he was looking at things I was applying to, he was like, you really need to apply to Madison. Like you would love it there. Mm-hmm. It's a great place. And, and for himself, he said he would really like to go back and live there. Mm-hmm. And so he, I don't know what he did. He um, has like a small like IT consulting business. It mm-hmm. was not easy for him. I mean, so he kind of figured out little bits and pieces here and there. But when you applied, though, did you know? Because I've I've always felt like for some reason I, I'm, I think I'm mistaken in this uh, assumption, but for some reason I thought that you went into University of Wisconsin Madison focused on comparative politics. I did. Oh, you did, and then changed right, kind right, of right. to I. But again, I didn't and know you're anything. So comparative. I, I mean, didn't know anything. Like I just knew kind of basic differences. So I wanted to study nationalism. And so I was like, what's nationalism? That's compared to politics. I want to go to Madison, so I'm going to look at who does that. So that was my application. Well, and isn't, isn't I mean, Wisconsin, at least back then, because I remember I was kind of looking at um, graduate programs right back, I mean, then as well. And I thought I was going in for comparative, like, Middle East. But um, but I remember Madison being, like, a, a, a like Wisconsin being, like, a big place for comparative, like, that you language training. Yes, it was big for that. But I can't, I didn't, that, that's such a sophisticated level of analysis. Like, I was like, Doug said, of all the places I want to go to Madison, I was like, sounds great. I mean, it was like, that was level of sophistication. Mm -hmm. So, I didn't know any of that. Oh, okay. I I didn't know any of that. I knew, so I looked up kind of who would be my advisor, and so Mark Beisinger, who studied um, Soviet Union and nationalism, Mm -hmm. would have been my logical I didn't even know. I didn't know anything. So that looked like a logical place. And they let me in, and so that's how I started in 2001. How was, um, so that, I think that's when I started at Iowa as well that fall. Um, So I I mean, I've asked this question to others, maybe it didn't make any impact on you at all, but um, so the fall of 2001 would have been your first semester there. Yeah. And obviously, like two weeks after class. It was my first week of class. 9 11, you're asking? It was first week of class. Did it like what? Did it have an impact on on not necessarily on you, but intellectually in the environment? Or no, I didn't know anybody. It was very bad because I was alone. Doug still had to my husband still had to finish some coursework in Syracuse, so we were living apart for that semester. So I was completely alone. I didn't even I didn't have my apartment unpacked, and so I was just very scared. Um, And I didn't really have any friends then. It was just it was literally like I just moved in. Mm So I don't. I remember it was our first week of class, and I remember we had one of our classes scheduled, and we held it, and the professor kind of just talked about that. Of course, like, oh, so we need to talk about this, so we can't talk about anything else. Um, a lot of people were concerned about. I remember very clearly a lot of professors were concerned how this is now going to ruin any chance for a Palestinian peace deal because everybody assumed this was the. Yeah, yeah. I remember um, that too. I, we had some professors that reacted that way. Um, yeah. They were older professors. But did so? So I, I'm assuming then that you didn't know, 
it, it took a little while to be able to get to know like other grad students in your yeah. cohort and everything. Yeah. How was the? How was that? Like how was the, like how did you? I don't know. I mean, eventually, obviously, you made great friends and everything. But um, did it feel a little bit intimidating or not? I can't, I can't say I've ever seen you intimidated. Like, uh, no, it wasn't that bad. We had a small cohort. There was eight of us. Yeah, that's what. It was uh, about. My issue was more that I was much older than everybody else. And so, again, I couldn't stay up. And so, they would all go, no, seriously, they would all go. No, I'm only laughing because I was much older than a lot of the folks in my program, too, but I was able to stay up. Yeah, so my issue was always, like, I was this old lady, you know, they were all, like, going on drinking afterwards, and I'm like, it's nine (laughs) o'clock. So, it was was a little bit of an age thing in the beginning that that disappeared over time, Uh But, uh, but that was more of a... Just like a little, I was like, I was in a different place in my life, I think, maybe a little bit than a lot of my, because I was about eight to ten years older than Mm -hmm. the average person in my whole Well, and you're married, and you know, maybe not everybody. Yeah, it was a little, yeah, I was like in a little bit of a different place, I think, Uh but that that soon disappeared. We had a really great group. Did it feel, uh, I know you don't want to talk about genealogy of, um, like, mentors and anything else, but did it feel like you had, like, obviously you switched to IR at a certain point. Right. So how? What? Like when did that happen? Well, that was that was interesting. So, so I thought I was going to do a dissertation on nationalism, and I was interested in diaspora nationalism. So I approached my then advisor, my Weisinger, about it, and he didn't particularly like the idea, which is fine because I don't think I had a very fleshed out idea. Because like, we what never a, do. What about diaspora nationalism? I was like, I don't know, it's bad. And he was like, that's just dumb. <laughs> um, so, so I, so he said, okay, like, why don't you take your exams and then we'll talk afterwards. So I took my exams, I took comp and I, uh, comparative and IR and, um, and I've already taken, so Michael Burnett was our senior IR professor. So I've taken some classes with him and I really liked it. And, but you know, I just took that as kind of my second field. And then I think Michael, um, heard that I'm interested in doing something different, or at least I was like talking to people. And so he emailed me, I think I still have that email. Mm-hmm. And he said, I hear that you want to write about, because I was then kind of realized that maybe this diaspora nationalism thing is not very fleshed out. So I wanted to do something on the hate tribunal and on international uh, war crimes tribunals. Mm-hmm. And mostly I wanted to do something about how they went bad. I'm always, everything I've ever written is about how things are bad, as you know. When, when was the ICTY, um, the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia, when did that, had that been happening yet? Or? Yeah, yeah, so that started in 1994. Oh, it did, oh, that's so it right. Already it, had, it already had cases and everything. Oh, okay, but was it, it was still, like, active, though, during yeah, the time, right? Yeah, it was active. Yeah, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, so I was interested, so then I, rem- I remember, so he just published the, um, his rules for the world, mm-hmm. and he has with with Finnemore, with Finnemore yeah. and he had us read that manuscript in class, and um, so I thought, oh, you know, this is really like he's talking about pathologies of IOs. What I'm interested in is a pathology. So I'm just kind of processing this, and I must have said this to somebody, not to him, and then he sends me this email saying. As soon as you're done with your exams, uh, I would like to take you to lunch because I think I need to be your advisor. And I was like, really? Yep. I think I still have the email. And I was like, Michael? <laughs> and he was like, yes. So first, first take your exams. So I took my exams, and 
that high pass. And the only reason I'm saying this is that you can never say this on anything. Like, it never goes on any CD. So this is my only opportunity <laughs> to, in life to say that I got <laughs> high passes in my exams. It was, yeah. And so... Um, I am so going to refuse you with yeah, that. As, 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 <laughs> no. Because it's such like, I was so proud of it, and I immediately realized I can never use this final argument. No, yeah. no. Okay, anyway, anyway, anyway. So I then... Um, when I was done, I sent him an email back saying, yeah, we can have lunch. And so we had lunch outside. I remember we were like on the steps. It was all very romantic. Mm-hmm. We were like on the steps of, you know, one of our uh, buildings. And he said, I've heard what you want to do. Tell me what you want to do. I said, what do you want to do? And he said, I'd love to be your advisor. I've just written this book. And I think you can take this and you can mm-hmm. run with right it. With it yeah. And if you're interested in that, I would love that. And we have written this blueprint for people. And if you want to take that blueprint and go with it, that would be amazing. And I said, you want to work with me? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, but you gave me an AB in your class. And he's like, yeah, but sorry about that. And then I said, okay. And so I broke up with my first advisor, and I was totally fine. Sam understand. Things change. People's interests change. No hard feelings. That makes sense. Your interests have moved. And so I... So uh, I have two reactions to that, that uh, um, to hear your thoughts on. So first, I do you ever do that with grad students? The same thing, like email them and because I'm always the soft sell. It's like if they want to work with me, great. No. If, okay. I tell I have a student who's so good, and I'm like, come on, dude, you know what's good for you, <laughs> but I don't want to say that. So I keep saying, choose whoever, and I'm like. Like, seriously, dude, like, what are you waiting for? So it's a little bit like this, like, uh, quotation, okay. but I haven't, I haven't said that. Because, yeah, yeah. But well, yeah. and then the other reaction I have is, did you feel like then you had to dive even more deeply into, or you, maybe you already knew that literature, but did you feel like you had to really shift gears towards IR a little bit, or... Or, no. or am I just, I, may, maybe I'm just overthinking it in retrospect. I maybe don't at the think time. so. No, I think it was fine, because I also had... I had a co-chair, so my co-chair was Lee Payne, who's Mm -hmm. a comparativist of Latin America, and specifically on Truth Commission. So I had, so it was very, it was a a very good setup. So I, you know, worked with Michael on kind of what is this going to do for, you know, the IR argument, and then with her about what the mechanics Uh of these, and it was nice to have a balance. And and then you're, um, so was Aisha already working with Michael at this point? The same thing happened to Aisha. Oh, she no, got okay. the same email. That's right. Okay. Yep. At the same like. And right she at has the same, the same first advisor. Yes. <laughs> Basically, Aisha and I are the same person, which you will soon realize. We're the same person. Yes. <laughs> but did that make it? A, I don't want to say easier, but it probably made it fun or you know enjoyable, like grad school, like to have somebody that was working. Oh on the my same god! Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you talk about genealogy, Aisha's article is more important for my intellectual. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm totally serious. I'm sure. For my intellectual development than any of my advisors. Yeah, yeah. That's that's how it is. Because we had you. such a similar experience. Like her topic is completely, you know, different. Her interests are different. But we had a very similar experience and same advisor and same support and kind of we figured and we helped each other and we figured this shit on our own mm-hmm. and we still did. Did you um? Well, it's the same thing for me as well. Like Jeremy Yoon and Jack Amaro were like way more influential than any advisor I had. But um, so now we're kind of getting to the part of 
your development or evolution when I started asking about publishing. So were you were you sending your stuff out around this time? Were you getting advice through that, or was the advice back then? Because I've seen, like, for me, it felt like there were there were two ways you could handle it back in the early 2000s, early to mid-2000s, where you could just try to get the dissertation done and don't get distracted by anything else, really, or and or um, try to get uh, some of your stuff out so that you're published, so that you're more marketable than anything else. But were you, were you doing anything? I sent one piece out to Ice Cube and got brutally rejected. Okay, so what, what would this have been? Like when... So... Were you ABD by this point? Or? Yeah. 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 It, was, it was brutal. It was like a chapter, and it was like, what is this shit? Like, what is this? So a chapter of your dissertation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that got, and then I sent another thing to Human Rights Quarterly, and that also got rejected. So I was like, well, okay, it's not going to work. So mm-hmm. I just then finished dissertation. Because I was thinking, and that's the advice that I got from my co-chairs, was like, okay, this is a dissertation that is a book. Mm-hmm. So as soon as you're done, send it out as a book. So I was like, okay, well, I'll look that. So that's Which I you did. really quickly did. did. So you yeah. get your, you get your uh, PhD in 07. The book, I mean, it, I the publication date is 09, which means it, I it was accepted. I sent out my dissertation. Most, mostly I just changed dissertation to book in time and place. <laughs> and I rewrote the conclusion to be a little bit more substantial. Mm-hmm. But that's, this is my dissertation. So what, uh, how... Um, when, when you went on the market then and I had you gone in 06. I had zero. Okay. But that's not true. No, no, no. That's not true. I had a co-author piece you do, with in Jeremy Schiffman from Syracuse, this guy who yeah. helped me uh, apply for PhDs. On, he's interested is in uh, public health. Right. So it's so, titled Reproductive Rights right. in the State, so, Croatian, so he, Serbia. Yeah. So, yeah. He, so he was like, well, can you help me? I'm interested in this. So this was about uh, kind of anti-women pro-natalist policies, like a nationalist make more babies. Right, 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 yeah. So he was interested in that, and I said, oh, yeah, do I have a country for you? <laughs> um, and so, so that and that was accepted, like, immediately at this very good journal for public health, which didn't help me really as a political scientist mm-hmm. on the market. But back, then, back then, anyway. Yeah, right. but I had something, mm-hmm. but that was it. I, that's all I had. I didn't okay. have any of my own stuff. Well, I, because for me, I remember... That's maybe, like book chapters, but like really long. Yeah, no, I know, and we have it, but I, I just remember back in, um, back in the, I, I just remember thinking, I will have no shot unless I get part of my dissertation published, so that I can, I can like an article, so that I can present that as like my research uh, presentation or whatever. But you know, but then I've talked to so many other people from that era, and it's like, no, that isn't necessarily the case. As long as you are asking really good research questions I was and doing good stuff. I was told to present a combo of my quote-unquote theory chapter with one empirical chapter. And that's what I did. Okay, yeah. I presented two chapters of my dissertation. Merged into one. So, and I have one more brief question about uh, Wisconsin. Uh, did, did it feel like there was a methods rivalry there or not? I mean, Iowa was like really, really just there, on fire. It was. It, there was, it, yeah... Yes and no. Yes, it was clear where the camps are, but the qualitative camp was so strong then. That's it. That we were like, well, we can fight on your guys' mm-hmm. turf. Like, you don't have to, like, you know, don't look at me on that. It was very, you know, like, we're, 
So I we were, and did did it filter down to the grad students as well? Like, did different grad students have arguments over methods, or was it just one of those things where the faculty we know the camps, and then we don't have to worry about that? Well, anymore? I think we all we all separated into there are people who are not qualitative, people who are not quantitative, and we just kind of separated, and we had it was pretty clear who's going to be your advisor if you do this, and who's going to be advisor if you do that. Right. And we kind of just. Went on separate ways. And so, and, but you didn't have to worry about. Um, I have never taken a quantitative methods class in my entire life. You, did, you didn't have to at Wisconsin. Because you know what I did? I opted out because I've taken stats for my master's in IR at Syracuse, which was just baby, ridiculous baby stats, but at Wisconsin people didn't know that. So I was like, well, I've taken this, so I opted out. And you didn't have anything like uh, formal theory or differential calculus or anything? I'm like? sure that existed, and I was like, I'm not doing it. Okay, okay. So I, yes. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. There was, like for us, it, that was it, right? I mean, it was still perestroika and everything. And didn't you, yeah. So friend of the pod, the first uh, interview guest, Curry Shortshay, um, told me that you came up to her one time when I brought you out to Salt Lake, and that you were on a panel with Perry, at maybe an APSO or something. Is this right? Do you remember this? And um, and you thanked her because apparently somebody like was ripping on everybody for not doing positivist methodology or whatever. And Perry like <laughs> stood up for you all and everything. Um, and so this would have probably been right around yeah. this time or yeah. whatever. Um, okay, so then. But I should say, but like I didn't understand then what because our. The environment in Madison was cocooned because we had such a strong qualitative faculty mm-hmm. that I just thought that that was going to be okay. Like, I had no idea so, so the, of how bad it was going So to the get. conflict was just delayed for you. Then. Exactly. I was okay. like, oh, okay, there are these people who do this, but I don't care because I do this and that's fine. Yeah. And I had no, I had no idea how not fine that was going to be. See, for, for me, I felt like I was a grizzled veteran. But with all of that, by the time I got to, to Kansas, and there it was just delayed until like 09, 2010, and then I was just like, oh gosh, we're still doing this stuff. Um, so when you, okay, so when you went on the market then, obviously like there, it feels to me like when we go on the market, if you're getting to the stage of an interview, then issues over quantitative versus qualitative or, or positivist versus interpretivist. Uh, frameworks don't are are no longer an issue because at least you've got the interview right. So did you face that when you went? No, nobody asked me that. Did you like prepare for those types of questions or not? No, because oh, I they absolutely say, drilled it into me. But there's nothing I can say. My what kind of a quantitative question? Like my like it it doesn't make any sense. Well, I so my dissertation I, is like how countries deal with their past. Okay. Put that in a faculty question. Well, because I <laughs> like <laughs> what? Like there's no. No, I know. Well, I know, but like I interviewed at your same department, like when I was on the market, and I did get a question about what would falsify your theory. Well, I would get maybe I'll get. I got I got some weird. I interviewed at Lewis and Clark. I'll never forget this. Yeah, yeah. And they asked me what would Andrew Moravchik say about my argument, and I said <laughs> I don't know and I don't care. I didn't get the job offer. No, but that's still, sometimes jobs are worth less than a great statement. Yeah, like, I'm just like, what? Are you really asking? Like, what would Andrew, I'm sure he would say this sucks, but you know what? I don't care. Did they have a bracelet that had WWA? It was uh, so bizarre. It was like, you were upset. This guy kept asking me. Like, yeah. So I, I would get questions like that. I should also say 
that I, in my life, has, have gotten many, 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 many interviews. Once they meet me, they never issue me an offer. <laughs> I literally had two job offers in 12 years of my career and going on the market and applying for jobs. Well, I had many, many interviews by like a factor of like, it's just that I think once they meet me, they're like, yeah. But then the ones that do offer you the job know what they're signing up for. So that's okay. I, I guess that's well, not So did not you have any interviews then the year that you were on the market? For I, it, was, it was interesting because I, I, had, I had three interviews that I could physically go to because I was nine months pregnant on the market or eight months pregnant and then it turned into nine months pregnant. So I got two or three, three, three additional interviews, so that would have been six total, but I couldn't travel to them. Right, yeah, because you can't fly. Anymore. And that was a whole bad experience about just being basically told, well, you didn't plan that right, did you? And I'm like, well, can I? I was, I was so insane. I was like, well, can you wait? Like, my baby's going to be born in December. I'll fly two days later. Like, I had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> I was, like, offering all these ideas. I was like, we'll do Skype, and then I'll travel, and I'll, like, leave my baby at home. Or, I'll, like, I had all this crazy, but none of them, they were like, yeah, no. You well, are no longer eligible for this uh, position. So that sucks. Um, um, like, just oh, yeah. I was, off, like, right? I was... I think I was actually treated illegally at least at one place that canceled my ticket when I said I was pregnant and I couldn't fly and they wouldn't schedule it. Vassar. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. They canceled. So I said, I said, and they were it, they were so late in the process. So they were interviewing in December, and I have already interviewed in October and November for these other places. And I said, I really am interested. I'd love to do it. I just can't. Like I'm due in seven days. Can we do a video Skype or can we do something? Or can I fly in two weeks, thinking that in two weeks after birth I was going to be ready? But I didn't know. <laughs> it was my first child. I had no idea about what I'm doing. And this woman said, well, that was not very well planned, was it? Oh, that's and I said, And I said, well, I didn't really think about it that way, so yeah. whatever. And then I go home and I get an email from then Northwest Airlines, now defunct. Right. Your ticket has been canceled. And they just canceled my ticket. Which, I, I know you know this. Like I think that, that's that, illegal. That is illegal, and that would have rolled over into your Delta miles, because Delta absorbed North Yeah, North. I know, exactly. So that is like doubly tragic I know, there. I'm really upset. So, um, but the, so I, I don't know if you noticed this, but I'm still bitter about that. <laughs> well, I would be too. Still bitter about that. Um, and, and the thing is, is that they got you by, I mean, the metaphorical walls, right? I mean, they, they really do, you know, because you can't, like, fight back against them. But the one thing I was wondering, so... It, it's so similar to what I was dealing with, except not, right? I wasn't the one that was pregnant, but we were expecting our first when um, I was on the on the market. And so, like, in addition to just the, the crap that you're dealing with, like, what was the, did you feel like a lot of pressure? Like, I have to get a job because, you know, we have a child on the way. and Or did you have, like, a buffer backup? I if, didn't have any buffer, but I was, I thought I was, I thought I was going to get a job, and if I didn't, I think I thought I was going to stay in Madison another year and try to, like, adjunct or lecture. Oh, I see. Okay. And then try again. And I was kind of confident. I was like, of course, I'm going to get I'm going to get some job. It's not going to be a good job, but I'm going to get a job. Mm -hmm. I just, that was kind of my mindset. <laughs> so I ended up only being able to do three interviews of about six that could have possibly have happened. And out of those three, I got this one offer, and I was like, "Yeah, you guys are the only ones calling, so sure." And then did, um, and it was, 
there was like no um, hesitation to move to Atlanta. Yeah, it was, I think it was the only job I had. Okay. Uh, the, 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 yeah, right. that was. And with, were you um, were you targeting not just research in? I applied to sixty four. So you did. Okay. Yeah. And you know, like for me, I, I applied in, in the fall of '04 to I think one hundred and ten um, positions, like all all over the world and everything. But which is like both daunting and also encouraging back then because at least there were one hundred and ten yeah, jobs. Exactly. Now nowadays there's hardly any. Um, okay, so what was it like when you transitioned into? It was horrible. Yeah? Was it really? It was horrible. Yeah? It was the worst time of my life is my first year as assistant professor. Why? I was completely unprepared for what the job entails. I was very unprepared for the transition from student to professor. Like, I, even though I had, had, you, had you taught? Or? Yeah, yeah. I did, I did TA, and I think I did lecture. I think I did, like, one short course. So it wasn't, it wasn't that. Like, it, I wasn't, like, scared of being in a classroom. It was just... It was somehow being rudderless. Like I, when I was a graduate student, I knew I had to finish the dissertation and I had this goal. And now I'm kind of on my own and I don't have any guidance. And I had a baby and the baby doesn't sleep. And, and yeah. it's the 2007 economic crisis. Yeah, so my husband, who moved to Atlanta with me, has no job. No and we're living on like $50,000 my salary. Yeah. We can't put the baby in daycare. Right, because that's another mortgage I mean, payment. Yeah. Like, what is happening? And so it was just, it was insane. It was really horrible. I remember like being so sleep deprived and very stressed about money and living on this one income. Not knowing a single person in Atlanta, completely different city, obviously, the Madison, urban campus, um, not walkable, not really walking to see people on the street. Where, where, did you guys oh. live anywhere near campus or not? Or did you we lived like, like 20 minutes away, right? but still not walkable. Mm -hmm. um, just like not knowing, not knowing anybody, not knowing how the place works, how am I going to ever get anything done? As I mentioned, my son didn't sleep for four years through the night. I, I didn't sleep for four years. No, I know. I had the same. I, mean, I had the same first child. And I had a lot of financial. It was really difficult finding the finance because. So I got hired in two thousand seven, and then the economy crashed, right. and so there were no jobs. And I didn't even ask for any jobs for my husband because I didn't think that that was. I, I, I honestly, I don't think that would have given anything, any consideration to his IT skills. But maybe I should. Anyway, I didn't. And so he was completely out of the job for almost a year. Mm -hmm. And he was super stressful. Well, and then, like, um, so that, that's interesting, actually, because um, that's the period of time when, at least in most public universities, whether it was in the Midwest or elsewhere, um, like the first thing that got slashed, at least at my university at Kansas, was travel funds. So did, did you have to, like, did you feel like you had to either finance it yourself, or like were those kinds of cuts happening at Georgia State? Yeah, we had uh, furloughs. You so did have furloughs, okay, so, so they, that was like our next yeah, level. So they cut like $200 each month from yep. your paycheck. It was just, and I couldn't live on what I had. It was very, it was really bad. And then somehow my, but then that's that first, I think it was that first fall. So I just started, I went to, I say, in uh, the spring semester of that first year, and mm -hmm. one of my other committee members, my friend Dave Laini, who just published his second book with Cornell, 
so, you know, I'm just going to introduce you to Cornell editor. Let's just go together. So he introduced me, and I made, like, a quick pitch, and then I sent an email, and then somehow my book got published very quickly, and that changed almost everything really quickly for me because mm-hmm. at least I was like, oh, my God, I have a Cornell book, like, yeah. immediately. So I uh, so all the stress about my career kind of disappeared. I still had, like, financial stresses and family stresses and all that stuff. But I kind of knew, I was like, I'm going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Like, I just published my dissertation. I didn't even, like, you know, change much. So, I, so like, that that changed my confidence really almost out the bat. Yeah. yeah. Which liberation. Totally. Yeah, so yeah, I was yeah. like, I'm going to be okay. Yeah. So I can just do what I want. So when what was the moment like when you found out that the book was going to be published? Like, where were you? I remember getting, so I was, I was very, like, very quickly the editor was interested, and he was very kind of complimentary about my proposal, so he was like, oh, I really like this, I think it's very original, so I was like, oh, okay. So and I that's talked, huge, the editor Right, so exactly, so I talked to others, and I talked, so I talked to Michael, my advisor, who published a bunch of stuff with Cornell, and he was like, oh, yeah, that's really good sign, things, and that. so I was already kind of thinking this is going to be okay. And then I got my first review, and then very quickly the second review, and they were so good, and I was like, okay, so I'm sure I'm going to get a contract, and then I got a contract, and it was, it felt, I remember thinking, oh my God, I'm going to have a Cornell book. Yeah. Because I really like Cornell Press, and I like their books, and I like, they have a whole kind of aesthetic to them, and the way of writing that's more accessible than some others, and anyway, I really wanted that, so I, I thought, look at me. Like, I'm this, like, little girl from Belgrade, you know, with an accent, and I... Did you go out and celebrate I... No. My son was two. He was not sleeping. I was like, sleep. Like, like you know, it's like, but you would do one. Oh, I totally understand. Oh, like, no, I didn't celebrate. I was like, will you sleep tonight, please, for the love of God. You didn't even take a moment and just kind of soak it in? No, I don't think so. I don't do that. I just move. I was like, "All right, next." Oh, okay. I'm that. Okay, I all right. I don't all right. I'm just more into next. that. I, but I, I, I remember when when Autosec was um, got the sort of acceptance. I so this is before you had phones, right? That had email on it or whatever. And so I was, I knew when I went to bed because of the time difference, because the email was going to come from Abington uh, because it was Rowledge. That when I got up in the morning, I was going to get that email of whether it's been accepted by the board or, or not. Um, and so, you know, of course, so like, you know, I'm t- tossing and turning all night. And then I finally woke up at like, well, actually, I didn't wake up. It was my daughter that woke me up and I had to go feed her. And then I come, come back. And then I see that email and I'm like, oh my God, yeah, you know. But it wasn't, it I was mean, more, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't as big of a deal. For, for me, it was more relief. It was more like, no, that's wow. true, too. Yeah. I'm gonna be okay. I just yeah. remember thinking I'm gonna. I'm, this is gonna be. I'm gonna be okay. So in my head, I'm gonna be okay. I'm gonna get tenure. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna continue to have this job. We'll figure out our financial. Like we'll survive somehow. And I'm gonna be fine. And maybe this will be good for me going forward. So, and you're. Um, it feels like nowadays that you're like the most massively networked person I know. Um, I cannot really use that word. That's such a horrible. Interconnected, whatever. Like with a positive know? spin on it. I, I don't know what it is, but but um, I know a lot of people. <laughs> you do know a lot of yeah. people. A lot of people know you, but because um, you put yourself out there on Twitter all the time as well. But 
back then, like, were you consciously no trying to network? I, oh God! I thought we were friends. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna stop this podcast right now. Consciously, that I can't believe I'm honest you enough. I'm said so, that. I'm self-reflecting. That is so. I'm so offended. No, I'm just asking. Well, I had a Rolodex of famous people to talk to. What the fuck? No, 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 no. no. That's, that's not what I meant. But, but, but did you? Um, but were you told to go out and network? Like, were were you ever no, told by people to go no. out? No, I mean, people would mention this, and I'm like, that's stupid. Like, I can't. Well, and the networking doesn't have to be the like, you know, making. No, a pitch. I'm telling you. Aisha Zarko helped me in my life. Like, she would introduce me to people. I would introduce her. I mean, she helped me way more than I helped her. Mm-hmm. But it was more like us going to ISH together. We always hung out. We always did everything together. And so she would be like, oh, you know, I want to meet my friends. You want to do this. And then, I mean, this is how right. it was. But the problem is that you went to bed at 8 o'clock at every time. That is the problem. So I'm like a little bit delayed <laughs> with my networking. But I mean, I, so if, so like, Dave Laney introducing me to the Cornell editor probably counts as networking, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael didn't introduce me to many people. Lee Payne introduced me to, like, she introduced me to Catherine Sicking, who was important for my area. So I've known Catherine for a very long time. And even though we disagreed a lot, I still, she invited me to some panels to talk about her book. So, you know, she kind of considered me as somebody who has enough standing to talk about her work, which was important for me going forward. Uh, so maybe little things like that. Well, and I, I actually think the most meaningful type of networking, I know you hate that word, but it's like the stuff that are the moments that you're not considering networking. I don't consider, I don't know what that means. I'm really, I'm like really, I hate that. No, okay, yeah. so I won't even use networking. What would you use? What would be the term that you would use? I don't being know, a good like, social scientist? Well, just like meeting people, and sometimes you meet people and just like them, and right. you want to do something with them. Sometimes you meet people you don't like. Um... That's it. I don't, yeah, I don't really, okay. I mean, my conferences are me and Aisha go out and hang out. But was that what it always was? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what did, it, I asked you It this was one. a little bit more, like in the beginning, there was a bigger cohort of Wisconsin people. We had a pretty strong cohort. So Aisha mm-hmm. was a year ahead of me. So she had her cohort and mine. So it was like two years combined. So it was a lot of us. And, and Nance was in there somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Nance okay. and Pat Cottrell and Shimanti. Yeah, Shimanti, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there's yeah, a lot of people. And so we were, you know, kind of a strong group, and we liked each other, and we, we got along. And so we would always get together at ISAs, and, you know, you kind of, that's how you also meet people. So, mm-hmm. you know, Mark would be like, oh, you know, there's this guy you should meet. Yeah. So, so then, you know, our dinners would be bigger, and our events would be bigger. And you never, you never, like, felt like you were necessarily particularly connected to one of the sections of ISA, like other... I groups. did not join a section of ISA until somebody yelled at me to do that. I think you... I did, said. yeah, I told yeah. you to... somebody told me I had to yeah. do that, but could be fine. <laughs> um, so yeah. when you... Were you nervous when you went up for tenure, even though you felt no. like you were... No, you were fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had a book of 13 articles, and I was like, you know what? You want to tenure me? Just Good. knock yourself out. No, no, I'm never. I'm telling you, like ever since I got that first book contract, I was. I just felt I'm gonna be okay, and it's all gonna be good. And I have. I've not had stress over I, my. Well, and I, I think I just don't. And, and so, if you look at, oh my God, I mean, it's like there's like three pages of articles here. But if you look at the the wave of publications you had right after your book was published, it's like, I mean, did you feel like it also liberated you in terms of opening up 
research. Yeah, the yeah. So I wrote like this ethics paper that did really well mm -hmm. for um, the ethics of responsibility, which was a completely one-off. I mean, it's related to my right. research, but it was more of an ethics piece. Mm -hmm. Then I wanted to work on identity. Then I kind of wanted to move away from international courts and tribunals. I'm doing on so I just moved into different stuff. So I wanted to talk more about identity. So yeah, it, it, it did the great. Sure. Well, and that uh, I mean, you. Well, you have the ISQ piece in 2011. Um, you, I was going to ask you about this. There, there's this um, article in uh, Southeastern Europe uh, about the title of it is called the. I haven't read this, so I was just going to ask you, like, what you mean by this term, the cruelty of false oh, yeah, yeah, remorse. Yeah. So that was a, um, a solicited piece for a special issue about... Um, I love that term, false report. It's about... So the special issue was about ICTY and, uh, and confessions. And okay. so, like, they wanted people to talk about, like, particular confessions or what can be learned from confessions. And so I said, I want to write about this one woman who expressed remorse and then retracted it. <laughs> so she expressed remorse and then got a really sweet deal. Uh -huh. And then as soon as she got a sweet, de sweet deal, she retracted it. Uh -huh. So then I talked about the implications of that because it was false remorse. She just can't lie. She's not very sorry. Hence your skepticism regarding TRCs, right? Truth and reconciliation. It's, yeah, it's yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So uh, a couple of things. Um, so this is where we move to academic practices for you, like how you sort of engage uh, what it is that we do. So um, you mentioned this morning at coffee that you love writing, and you did say, though, that it's changed, right? Mm -hmm. That you didn't always love writing, you used to love reading, or, or maybe not love reading, but you didn't love writing at least. So when, when and why do you think you started to love writing? I, well, I've never hated writing, so I, I never I never dreaded it as much as many people I know did, but I was more nervous about it, I would get bored with it, and more distracted, and then I think once my topics got liberated, and once I kind of didn't really feel like I need to care about a particular field, or particular field, I could just write about whatever I wanted. Mm -hmm. No, I just enjoy it. I enjoy it more than reading. I like reading, but I always think about what I would say to what I'm reading. I feel like I have so, so much commentary, and I enjoy writing that commentary more. But I really like, that's why I say yes to like a bunch of like special issues and things that are kind of left and right, because I'm like, oh, I get to write about this. So I get to actually like express my words on paper, and I, I like sitting in front of my computer. I like I mean, you know, I write and it's trash, and then I revise it, and it's mm -hmm. less. I mean, you know, it's never good when you start. But I like, I like putting my thoughts on paper because I have a very confused and distracted mind. Like I have like multiple things going on at the same time. Mm -hmm. I think about this, and then and so it's actually good helpful to for me yeah. to be able to put things on paper because if it's in my head, it's 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 all floating in some. Space. But what was interesting about, um, well, there are many, many interesting things about our coffee this morning, all of, most of which I will not repeat on here. But Were um, you supposed to go to a panel and then you didn't? <laughs> yeah, I did. No, okay, I I'm sorry. Well, I you, you got us rolling. But um, but uh, I guess for me, I still I still write out things, right? Like physically write out things. And you said that you can't do that I anymore. can't write. So yeah. when like a thought... 
pops into your head about how you have to do research. Like I know um, your uh, which which uh, journal was it published in the the travel brochure uh, article that you did? Or oh, the brochure. East European Politics and Societies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, J J A T yeah. more than flying. Um, were you on a plane when you got that idea, or not? Or or was that just how did you discover that? I always and I'll double back to my. Question. So before I had my phone and iPad, I would always read travel magazines, mm -hmm. and I just thought they were amazing because they were always so nationalistic. Yeah. Or like they were like, come to our country. Our country has the you know the oldest monuments and the oldest church and everything is the oldest. And I was like, that's not true. <laughs> so I would start collecting them. And so I had this like stash of them, and so I was like, you know, I really need to kind of write about this. Were you, were you writing down though at all, like physically writing down, like why you were collecting them, or was it no. just in your mind? It's you all in, my head. in your mind. Yeah. How do you retain that though? I don't know. I had. I think I'm a little bit better now. So now I have a folder in my computer called New Projects, mm -hmm. and it's just called New Projects. I don't know what they're gonna be, but they're new ideas. So that's like where I put different articles that I read or things that I think about and I have like a Word document where I kind of type. So you have some ideas. kind of a, a time capsule or nugget there that yeah. will remind you. Yeah, that's yeah. What you want so to do. it's like new idea. So I have like a Word document that I kind of type things as I'm thinking about them. Okay. Yeah. And then and then you just like thereafter, do, do you like write out an outline or, I know this seems really mundane, but this is like fascinating to me, like how you actually go about doing the, the process, going from that I to always a write paper. an abstract first. You so do? outline is okay. abstract. So I always write an abstract the way it should be as an abstract. Uh -huh. And so that's what I have. And then, you know, I change it afterwards, but I have an abstract and then I just, so I, what I do now, and this is change. I used to read, 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 or write up notes of the literature. And then use We're, that. You type them into. Yeah. Okay. Well, I type. I can't. My I can't write anymore. Right. I mean, yeah. I can't. <laughs> so everything. I, I'm. I'm completely digital. I can't even. I, everything is on computer. So I used to read, 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 write up notes, and then use that when I'm writing. But that's inefficient. Or at least now it's inefficient. So now I read, and then I immediately kind of put stuff into this main thing that's going to be a paper anyway. Like, and so then I just go through, and it's all this like big jumbled mess of a word document, and then that gets reshaped into a paper. It's a little chaotic. No, but that's uh, so. Do you um? So there's really no intervening process where you um. Well, you you write up the paper, but like you said, you're you're like kind of like maybe like I am. You're an offensive writer where you get it all out and yes. then you go back to revise yes. it. Yes. 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 Okay, so you're not like meticulous, meticulously trying, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no. I used to, I, and it just took so long, I used to collect, well, that, I still do this. I still research everything that I can about that topic to see what people have written about it. Mm -hmm. And then I download all of those articles in my folder, but then as soon as I read them, I comment on them. And I that comment is part of the main paper. But I used to just like read, 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 highlight, and then go back to the highlighted yeah. stuff, and that is just I don't have time for that anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, like, so now it goes into the big paper, and that's some kind of a really rough lit review, and then from that lit review, my own argument kind of goes next. Practices of self care. <laughs> 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 you gotta get to it. If you 
self-care is, how do you I might be able to answer How do you recharge? How do you keep going? How, how do you distract? If, if, like, keeping going is distracting yourself from what it is that we do, then how do you do that? Obviously, you play tennis. Obviously, you have other interests. You have, you have your family. You, you have, um, you know, other things that you're interested in. But I always feel like of all the people I've interviewed, obviously, you're just the third one, but, like, of all the people I'm also thinking of interviewing, uh, you don't shut it off at all. Right? I don't. Okay. So I'm always, I always have like I have this vision of you playing tennis and tweet and and, and, and yes. hitting an awesome like yes. smashing backhand. Yes, yes. but That's then tweeting correct. while That's you're. Correct. So I'm so I'm always doing everything at the same time. I'm the I'm the exact nightmare of every productivity guru TED talk you have ever met. So everything the productivity people tell you. And everything that self-care people tell you about mindfulness and being in the moment, I am the opposite of that. And I just think my brain, I can't shut off my brain. So I am i go to my son's karate practice and have a computer and then yeah. I write. You I, tweet from there. The I day. am in the grocery store checkout line. I'm emailing. I am in a meeting. I am grading. So I'm constantly doing everything. Do you ever hit a wall? Sure. So what do you do then? Like you just shut up for a couple days? I read Twitter and I yell at you. <laughs> so basically, the other thing is my self-care. I think, <laughs> I, think, I think we just found out. That's really, that's my recharging problem. I think we've actually found. <laughs> so like tweeting at yes. me and yelling yes. at Nazis on yes, the side. Yes, that's, that's how I recharge. Oh my gosh, yes. okay. So how did you, like how long had you been in? into tennis like did you play tennis in high school no 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 okay. so no so uh i've always been a huge tennis fan i've watched tennis on tv since i was like five mm -hmm. and that is goes back to our beginning of my communist era upbringing we had only two tv channels channel one and channel two <laughs> and you know so i i didn't have like when i talked to my husband he's like what like i used to watch tv as a kid i did not we didn't have tv to watch oh, that's interesting okay. and so what we did have is Channel 1 and Channel 2, and then uh, for big tournaments like Wimbledon, mm -hmm. they would show it on TV, and that was so much more interesting than anything else. So I started watching it as a kid, mm -hmm. and I also really liked kind of the pageantry of it, and like Princess Diana would show up, and so it was just like me, this little like kid in Serbia, just doing something at the same time as Princess Diana. So it was like, it was like very glamorous. So I watched it very passionately forever. And then when we moved to Atlanta, we joined this uh, gym that also had tennis courts. Mm -hmm. And I would just sit, I would go work out, and then I would just sit on the courts and just watch people play tennis. Because for me, just the sound of it, the and, smell of it. Wait a second, a gym? It's a, like a sports club. Didn't ever, anybody like look over at you like you're creepy? Like yes. You're, okay. Yes. So my husband <laughs> was like, this is creepy. What are you doing? And I'm like... I'm just looking at the ball, and he's like, "Okay, that is just that's just not that's not that's not that's not okay." So he signed me up for beginners classes, and I was very nervous because I have no athletic background, ability, or coordination or anything, and so I was very nervous. But you know, I kind of could do it. I could like basically hit the ball over the net. That's all there is. And so I was so proud of myself that I can, in this, like, advanced middle age, actually do something athletic, that it became my job. 
I spend more time on the tennis court than doing almost anything else. I'm always not playing tennis. I love it so much, I can't even, I can't even describe it. Well, so that is self-care. I mean, I don't know if That's you realize fine. that. I mean, you, you view it as your job and you're going to go out there and destroy your opponent. But I mean... But I think what it is, is that I could never keep up with other... Like, I mean, I could go work out, but then I'll get bored. I could yeah. go yoga. It's like it's boring. This is competitive. And I can beat somebody and gloat. Like, that is what gave it life. But isn't, so isn't it also that you're in this community of other people that are not academics and that's kind of enjoyable as well or not? No. No, I think I would prefer there were academics <laughs> than so asking me okay. really stupid questions. No, 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 I don't. I know what you're saying about I the, don't enjoy talking to normal. I know what you're saying about the sensory experience of the sport though because I, I but for me, I, I was always, I grew up with it. But like with both basketball and golf, it was like one of those things where there is this smell related to memory that like brings you back and it's like, oh gosh, I'm so glad I'm out here on this golf course and that's, you know, on this basketball court or whatever. Um, But then I I got too old to be able to play basketball. However, I do have one question. Did did you ever, (laughs) did Leo ever play like uh, youth sports or anything so that you could be a coach? Did you ever? Oh God, no. No, I'm the kind of parent, so he is, he doesn't like uh, he's in a lot of a, But he's in a lot of activities. He though, likes yeah. karate and he likes skateboarding. He likes mm-hmm. individual sports. He doesn't like groups. So he, we tried a bunch of, he doesn't like soccer. He doesn't like anything. So he likes karate. But I'm the kind of person who goes in with a computer and iPad and have no idea what's going on. And he has to shout, Mommy, it's my turn. I'm testing. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm grading. Why are you bothering me? <laughs> so that's come up a little bit in our relationship. So now I pretend that I'm watching while I'm in fact grading. Ah, so you, you're, you're able to... Yeah, so I still, I like going, but I, I don't care about the athletic ability or coaching. Okay, so my last question. Um, oh, actually, yeah, yeah. This this is my last question. So um, you're. I think we're all really down on where politics is right now, right? So um, where do you see like our current political climate going? Like, where do you see this ending all in? Whether it's climate change or you know the politics of populism. Why are you or, asking me? How do I know? Well, no, I, I, because you're writing about it. I mean, you're writing about no, all but everything this. Everything I write is everything will always get worse and horrible, and it will only get worse. So that's what you think? Um, yes. Because it kind of relates to, like, my, my view on your, your book. is like, I, I think you're probably right, but it's also like it feels futile to even, in a way, it feels like it's futile to even push well, back against any no, of this stuff. There was, no all, there, was, there was fascism, and we defeated it, so we just need to defeat it. And it's going to take time. And it's Do you think take... we can? We did before. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Really? But, uh, yeah, okay. I mean, but but it, it needs to be defeated. It's not something to be negotiated with or talked, you know, two sides about. It, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's, a, it's a pernicious ideology that leads uh, with people dying. And so it needs to be defeated. And we just need to talk about it all the time. And we need to fight it. And we need to fight Nazis everywhere. On Twitter or in real life, and I mean that. What other what other choice we have? And I, I did have a quick question about Twitter. Like, how do you deal with like the abuse you get, like from real Nazis on Twitter, right? Like the real, like the like what? Like I remember one time when I was a lurker, not like 
out as a Twitter or whatever. I like looked at your, and you had dealt with like all of the neo Nazis. I think when you were in Poland or something or whatever, and then you were just like, when I got back, I had like a drink and I had to tell you know Doug about what all had happened and everything. Like, how do you deal with like did like didn't one of them or maybe it wasn't Poland? Maybe it was like one of them had mentioned something about your family or yeah, something. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you like how do you deal with that? Because obviously Twitter doesn't do anything about it. I mean they just sit there and they shut down like you know. I don't I mean I don't deal with it. I mean I report it, nothing mm-hmm. happens, they come back, I block people, I mute people. But this happens to me all the time. So I'm just like I mute people almost daily. People who write And you've never block. wanted to give up Twitter? No, I did um, not really. I mean, I, I, there, there were things that were very upsetting. Mm-hmm. Uh, things that, yeah, people were like, I, I said something and people went like, you know, you're a horrible mom. Your son is going to be, oh, uh, oh, you're, oh my God, no. It's I don't remember that. Oh, no, you're, you're obviously a horrible mom and your son is going to be the next U.S. mass shooter. And you're, you know, the way oh, your parenting is going to, you know, shoot up a high school. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, I get stuff like that all the time. Are you kidding? So it was upsetting, so I was like, okay, like, is this worth it? And my husband certainly doesn't think it's worth it, and he's not particularly in big fan of my Twitter feed. Um, so, but it just gives me, uh, it just, it's just a lot of fun. I like fun things, I like to laugh. I think everything is ridiculous, I think a lot of things are funny. Yeah. It's a great for me to connect to my friends who I don't see. Um, I get my news that way. I follow interesting mm-hmm. people. I learn so much more than if I just read like three newspapers. Yeah. I don't have time to read like academic no, journal. Who gets the we time? Don't. And so this is a, a super efficient way for me to kind of know what's going on, to also connect to people, to have some way to promote my work and show people what I'm doing. Um, so I think the benefits outweigh the advances. But no, it's, but again, it's not, it's not the first time it's happened to me. So I got, and I know you know, I got this like hate mail thing when I went to CNN in 2008. So I had to deal with hate mail, which is just the same thing on Twitter, my whole career. So it's just like, I'm just used to it. It's horrible. I hate it. I don't like it. I'm upset by it, but I'm at this point used to it. And it maybe also like fuels, fuels you even more to like fight against it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, the, the rage feeds. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm looking for the silver yes. lining of rage. Yeah. yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thank you, Professor Well, thank Sabata. you. Thank you for the mask commute. This was a very You only have one, though. I, I want the podcast to know that you only have one. I only one. had one. Okay. I'll, I'll have another one. All right. <laughs> okay. Uh, that was my interview with Yelena Subadic at Georgia State University. That was down in Pasadena at the ISA West at the end of September. It was a really enjoyable conference, really enjoyable conversation with Yelena. We've been friends for quite some time. We do a lot of work together, co-authors, um, co-conspirators, if you will. And so that uh, that was part of a, an enjoyable ISA West uh, conference down in Pasadena. It's October now uh, as I'm editing this and getting ready to send off this episode four of the Hayseed Scholar podcast. Some of the music that you're listening to is courtesy of Scott Pogamiller, a buddy of mine from Iowa. He goes by DJ SP on SoundCloud. Make sure you follow him. 
on there. Uh, I really enjoy some of the music that he mixes together. It works really well in this podcast as I'm still trying to get this figured out. All right. Hope everyone's doing well. I'm going to the ISA Northeast Conference in Providence, Rhode Island, the first week of November. And uh, I'm having my own book roundtable there. And so I'm hoping to interview a couple more people uh, down there. And so I hope everyone's doing well. Mm, Chase Pops, you got anything to say? Huh? Who's here? <laughs> yeah, all right. So that's Chase Pops saying goodbye and uh, signing off. Until next time, everyone, have a good one. See ya.